0: My thesis is that understanding our shame and our guilt and our sin and our despair, and not listening to the voice of Satan, but listening to the voice of the Good Shepherd as we heed His voice, compels us to a life of obedience and stewardship, which means to make Jesus Lord of our lives. There is a Christmas song that some of us—well, first of all, let me say this. I've really enjoyed the snow, um, it's been fun and uh, it's, it's fun to use like the first week of the year as a, thinking about life changes or, or to recall what happened in the past. So the last time Charleston had a significant snow, snowfall was um, 1989, just a couple months after Hugo. I Many of you remember that, we had eight inches of snow. It didn't hang around this long, but it was there. And I think back in 1989, and I think about uh, some of us, including us, we, we still were waiting for our home to be fixed, and we had literal boards over our window, so you could look out and see the snow through the cracks in the board over your window, and how God very kindly has been so faithful since 1989, which for many of you is ancient history. But as an old guy, let me just encourage you that God is faithful. God was faithful in helping us rebuild, helping our our broken city be rebuilt. So I, I use that as a springboard to praise God for his thankfulness. And on a personal note, the other major snowfall in the last 50 years was in 1973, when we had, again, eight or nine inches in Charleston. I was a freshman at the Citadel, and there were snowball fights at the Citadel. And I had a friend who was on a football scholarship from Miami, Florida. And I remember him sitting in the middle of the parade ground, or now they call it the parade deck, and just throwing snow in the air. I'd never seen snow in his life. And I remember that because uh, about a month later, I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and I was converted to the standard of Jesus as I understood that he died on the cross for my sins. And so I'll always, that snowfall was a prelude to Knowing Christ, and 1989 is a statement of God's faithfulness. So, uh, brought back great memories. But many of us have just gone through a difficult time at Christmas. I spoke to a a couple of people after the last service, and they said this has been a very, very hard Christmas for them because of family issues. And Christmas is supposed to be the happiest time of the year, and sometimes it is the most painful. And the new year uh, is painful there is a very schmaltzy, silly Christmas song entitled, It's Beginning to Look a Lot Like Christmas. Some of you older people will remember the song. Everywhere you go, there's a tree in the Grand Hotel, one in the park as well, something like that. And then, and then it says, a pair of hop boots and a pistol that shoots is the wish of Barney and Ben. Dawza will talk and will go for a walk is the hope of Janice and Jen. And mom and dad can hardly wait for school to start again. Ha, 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 uh, There's a lot of truth to that, by the way. I've spoken to a lot of parents this week, and they said, if they don't start school soon, we're going to really be in bad shape. I, I've called the last few days our, our MEE, our Minnesota Empathy Experience in South Carolina. Now we know what Minnesotans go through for months on end. Uh, we've had that. But later in the song, it says, but the prettiest sight you see is a holly that will be on your own front door. It's begin to look a lot like Christmas. Soon the bells will start, and the thing that will make them ring is the carols that you sing right within your heart. That's a schmalsy, stupid song. A lot of people say, well, the pretty sight you see is not the holly on your own front door. They're not carols that sing in our heart because this is a very difficult time. See, hard times come. And when hard times come, they're preceded by or accompanied by failure and guilt that are very real. And so, I just think about the voices we listen to. And Satan's voice, or the voices, voice of the world, is accusing. It is belittling. It is condemnatory. It offers no hope. See, Satan things says things to us like this: "It's too late. It's too late to change." It's too late to be reconciled. It's too late. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. And yet the Bible says we're being changed from glory to glory by the power of the Holy Spirit. The voice of Satan says that it's it's all about doing things better than everybody else whether it's academics or relationships or marriages or parenting. And I I read something a few months ago and I've said it several times in various settings, but this marriage counselor that's been doing it for years, he's a very committed believer, says that in marriage you have the 80-20 rule, that in the very best of marriages, 80% of the time you're gonna sing and laugh and enjoy each other, but there's 20% of the time you go, I don't get it. I, I don't understand how he thinks this way, how she thinks this way, and here we go again. And I read that and I thought, Thank you, because that's my experience. I don't know what Sarah's experience is. She's probably 100 to zero. She's such a great guy, but that's beside the point. Um, I think parenting is 80 to 20%. Nobody here is a perfect parent. See, one of, the, one of the great lies of the devil is, you don't measure up. And the truth is, we don't measure up. Relationships. And this leads to alienation and despair and particularly a type of withdrawal. And so four quick comments. Number one, do not listen to the voice of shame. The voice of shame says there's no hope. There's nothing that you can really do. You've blown it. It's always too late. Conversely, listen to the voice of the good shepherd. Jesus says in John chapter 10, it's a beautiful statement. He says, I go before my sheep and I call them by name and they follow me. Incredible concept. Jesus goes before us, he calls us by name, and we follow him. Are you listening to that voice? The other extreme, do not listen to the voice of the devil that says it's no big deal. See, the devil operates an extreme. On one extreme, he says, There's no hope, there's no hope, there's no hope, you're broken, you can't be fixed. The other is extreme is, is when we are involved in sin or failure to say, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. See, but both extremes are a lie. Sin is a really big deal because it breaks my joy and my usefulness and disrupts my fellowship with the living God. And if you're not a believer, it alienates from you from Him forever. Conversely, listen to the voice that says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am humble and gentle of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So it's a big deal, but it's not without hope. In 2 Corinthians 7, there's a statement made about repentance that is a banner statement. Paul is writing about people that entertain false doctrine and Downgraded his apostolic ministry. But this is what he says. These people had repented of their erroneous thinking. And Paul says in verse 10, For for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. And then he says, This marks of repentance. I want to be a repenting man. Marks of repentance. He says, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, and what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves, and you've done this, verse 12. In the sight of God. And he says, well, what earnestness? And John Calvin says about that little phrase. He says, earnestness over the due apprehension of sin. He says, hence, drowsiness or carelessness, i.e. is no big deal, or unconcern stands opposed to that earnestness of desire. Earnestness is an eager and active attempt to correct what is amiss. So when I repent, I want to be Earnest. I want to say, I I, want to get back in the Lord's way. Come Holy Spirit, teach me. He says, what eagerness to clear yourselves. What, What indignation against vices in your life. What fear that you'll be separated from the tender embrace of the Father. See, those are marks of repentance. And Satan is all about alienation. He says, you're the only one that struggles with this. What a lie. I talked to a parent recently who's in incredible pain incredible pain and I've walked with them for eight years now with a child that's just hard, hard, hard and uh, they're dear people earnest for the Lord I said you know I, I, uh, I miss people we have a lot of services but I haven't seen you in church lately. And she said, yeah, we, we're just so filled with shame, we don't, we don't feel that we can be with, with, with God's people. And I said, man, that's a lie. That is a lie. In fact, I'm going to ask the elders to vote for this next elders meeting. We're going to officially ask all perfect people to leave our church. Just, just to make the rest of us not feel bad. So everybody on this side will no longer be here. This is the perfect pe- people section over here. I mean, come, come on, Re- really. See, that, that's just, that's Satan alienating us, pushing us outside. You're the only one who struggles with Marital hardship. You're the only one that struggles with pornography. You're the only one that struggles with anger. You're the only one. Or or the other lies, how could you do this? There's no hope. That's why I love to go and just pray through the Psalms. And of course, Psalm 23, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The shepherds. Rod. See, a rod and a staff were used to keep the sheep within the graze land or on the path. A rod and a staff wasn't there just so they could pose for, for selfies. It was there. It was an instrument of keeping the sheep there. Lovingly used, but, but used. I said, God, thank you for your rod and your staff. And church, listen, all, all of these things are done in the context of community. And, and there, are, there are people here who come in and go out and they never get involved in community groups or or men's groups or ladies groups and they never share their burdens and so when, when difficult times hit and they do and they will there's a just kind of slip away I, I need people in my life i think of second timothy where timothy says you know there, there are, in, in a large house there are vessels of of gold and earthenware and some for noble purposes and some for ignoble purposes. You, you use the golden vessels to, to drink wine out of and eat delicate dishes out of, and you use the wooden bowls to take out garbage. And he says, that if a man cleanses himself from these things, he'll be a, a vessel sanctified and useful to the master. He says, how do you do that? He says, now, now, now flee from, verse 22, now flee from youthful lust." and pursue righteousness, faith, joy, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. It is all about community. I must be in community with the people of God. I think of the book of Hebrews, which is all about finishing strong and staying strong. In Hebrews 3, it says, in verse 1, Consider Jesus. The author and high priest of our confession. So so you, you consider Jesus. Point two would be verse seven. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So, so you consider Jesus and don't harden your hearts. And as you do that, verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that t- turns away from the living God. But... Encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So, so I, I, I consider Jesus and his greatness. I don't harden my heart when the Holy Spirit speaks through his word. And I do that in the context of brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Therefore, In light of the destructive nature of sin, and also in light of the superlative beauty of Christ, I want to be a repenting man, repenting man, earnestness, zeal zeal to clear my name, zeal to do the right thing. There are reasons for me to repent frequently. I'll I'll sit over here. I'm not the perfect group. I want to be an obedient person because the, the full embrace of knowing Christ leads to a life of joy and stewardship. Now, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 15, talks about something called repentance unto life. And repentance unto life, it says, is an evangelical doctrine, an evangelical truth, by which a, a, a person seeing the, the odiousness and the horror and the wickedness of sin in conjunction with the mercy that's offered for us in Christ, grieves for and hates his sin and turns and runs to Jesus. It's what happens when you're saved, but also as you walk with the Lord. You you see two things simultaneously. The the wickedness, odiousness, and heinous nature of sin and, and the beauty and the grandeur and the greatness of Christ. And you grieve over sin and its destructive power and you run to Christ. That's... That's repentance. Every every January, I read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite books. Just a great little book. And, And I also pulled this little document out. It's entitled, The Explosive Power of a New Affection, by a guy named Thomas Chalmers. Written in the 18th century, Chalmers was basically a double Ph.D. in math. And it's written like a double PhD in math would write. So you have to read every paragraph three or four times. But as you go through it, it's only 15 pages. As you go through it, you go, wow. Wow. Hear this. His thesis is this. There there are two ways. He says believers combat the error of the worldly system. Way number one is to show the end result of the worldly system and the fact that you do not reap a very good harvest. The end result is is, is brokenness and pain and frustration. He says the problem with that is that that's not going to give people a staying power. I mean, that's what I call grin and bear it or just grit your teeth Christianity. He says the second way that he advocates is to show people the beauty and the glory and the goodness of Jesus and the life that he extends to those who follow him. And then he just unpacks that. Let me just read a couple of sentences. He says, the love of the world cannot be expunged or wiped out by a mere demonstration of the world's worthlessness. But may it not be supplanted by the love of that which is more worthy in and of itself. It is not by exposing the worthlessness of the former, but by addressing to the mental eye the worth and the excellence of Christ, that all things are to be done away and all things become new to obliterate our present affections for the world by simply wiping them out and to leave the seat of that unoccupied would be to destroy the old character and substitute no new character in its place. And then he says, it is Christ apprehended by the believer as the one who alone can push out sin. It is when he stands dismantled of the terrors which belong to him as an offended lawgiver and when we are enabled by faith, which is his own gift. To see his glory in his face and to hear his beseeching voice as it protests goodwill to men and entreats us to return to him. It is in that moment that our bosoms are filled with joy. And I thought, yeah, that's it. See, and I think of raising kids. I love young people. If we just say, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that because bam, bam, bam. I just, that, that has a limited power. But when you say, don't do this so you can see the beauty of Jesus the glory of don't don't do that because if you do it will it will put a roadblock in your fellowship with the living god repent of your sin quickly because if you don't th- th- there'll be a, there'll be a, a coldness and a hardening of your don't behold the beauty of Jesus. see that that works for me which brings me to a passage of scripture I want to read this is Matthew 8 and you know it if you've been a believer very long it's, It's a well-known passage. I'm going to read verse 28 and following. And when Jesus came to the other side of the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what, they had, what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. It's one of the most bizarre, unbelievable portions of scripture in the Bible to me. So here's the background. Two demon-possessed men. We drove in another gospel, they cut themselves with rocks, chains couldn't bind them, they would scream and torment and throw rocks at people. Uh, they, they were various states of dress and undress uh, in the whole area, which really killed tourism in this area. You know, just that didn't work. And, and so th- here, here they are, and, and they're just a nuisance, they're profane, Cursing, salivating, bleeding men. And Jesus comes in, and they say, "You're here before your appointed time. The cross hasn't happened yet." Basically, he says, "If you're going to send us out, send us into some these, these pigs." And Jesus said one word: "Go." Boom! It happened. Now, why pigs? I don't know. And so the herdsmen, guarding the pig, go running into town, gather people in town square, and they, they tell what happened. And it says, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. In other words, they were much, much more concerned and absolutely thunderstruck about the demon-possessed men than the pigs because, that's what this is important, because when you read what this passage is about, and, and there are a few interpretations. Some people say the, the, the reason the town people ask Jesus to leave Blows my mind. Is because of economic interests. I don't think so, because they especially talked about demon possessed men. I think, my interpretation, they asked Christ to leave because they realized this teacher who had authority over demons and nature demanded their allegiance. And that's before they had any concept of the Son of God. And they realized we're not in control here. If we allow this man to stay among us, then we're not the center of our universe. Therefore, leave. Leave. And then I reflect on this and I say to myself, when I when I am half-hearted in my obedience, Lack of obedience, when I am a sluggard, when I'm lazy, when I am lustful, when I am angry, um, and I don't quickly repent, I am saying to the Lord of all glory, who is God in the flesh, leave, leave. And brothers and sisters, I want Christ to be Lord of my life and so do you in your best moments leave there's a man named Charles Algernon Swinburne who was a famous poet in England really in the mid 1800's he lived a very sexually dissolute life and he wrote a little poem and he's famous for just just a, a byline he says this he wanted paganism to come back he he loved the greco-roman paganism and their vibrant sexuality and he was had, had a, he had a host of issues in his life and so he, he he really despised the christian ethic and he wrote this thou hast conquered us o pale galilean the world has grown gray from thy breath You've conquered us, O pale Galilean." Conquered us in that England is now no more a pagan country with Druid worship and the Celtic worship, but now we have uh, supposedly a, a, a lot of Christian churches. You, you, you've conquered us, O pale Galilean. The world has grown gay, gray from your breath. I thought, you know. I read the Gospels, there's a lot of ways I describe Jesus, but not as a pale Galilean, a vibrant man, a glorious man, a man in full. And so Swinburne says, leave. Conversely, in John chapter 6, we have... Uh, Statement: The teaching of John six is, is weighty, and Jesus says, for example, uh, I, "I say to you in verse twenty six, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves and the fish, and, and, and do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you." Have a supernatural orientation. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, or whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 37, all the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out, for I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. These are strong statements. And then then we, we come to the end of the chapter, and it says this, This is a a glorious... This is when the Apostle Peter really hits it out of the park. This is is maybe Peter's best moment. In the Gospels at least. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God." Wow. So so Peter says, Lord, where in the world can we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we believe and we know that you are the Holy One sent from God. We can never say to you, leave because you're glorious and you're the king. This morning in the contemporary service, we sang a song. I just thought, man, this is so good. It's entitled, Praise the name of the Lord our God. And one stanza says, then on the third, at break of dawn, the Son of Heaven rose again. Oh, trampled death, where is your sting? The angels roar for Christ the King. Man, that, that does it for me. Like if Jesus, Passover Sunday or Saturday, said, if, 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 if these people didn't shout Hosanna, the stones would cry out. And so I look at Christ and I go, Lord, where, where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One sent from God. You are God. And so this year, I, I want to be a person who understands the, the joy of knowing Christ and walk in repentance and, and that Christ is my King. 1 Corinthians, you know, this leads to a life of stewardship. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, there's this statement. 1 Corinthians 6 is dealing with sexual morality in a very difficult place, difficult city, difficult time. I'll just start with verse 15. The Apostle Paul, this is an R rated passage, okay? So it's, very, it's very graphic, it's, very, it's just very R rated. He says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, The two shall become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So that's the discussion about about visiting temple prostitutes. But this is the, the teaching. Do you not know, believer, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own you were bought with the price, therefore honor God with your body. You are not your own. If, if you are a follower of Christ, if you believe He died on the cross for your sins, then, then, then we, we should say with the Apostle Peter, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe in you're the Holy One sent from God so my, my, my plea is that is that we understand the voice of the shepherd and we follow him. Earlier this week, I was reviewing the seven deadly sins. You know, it's a new year, you, you review things. And seven deadly sins are sins that were started um, by the the desert fathers. We call them the desert fathers in the third century. Uh, sins that, uh, that destroy life and limit our usefulness and our joy and really we want to fight for our joy and our youth- usefulness and, and let me just mention them. And The reason I like the seven deadly sins is it's easy to have two or three pet things we pick on that we don't deal with, you know. Uh, if you're not an angry person, man, people that are angry really have a problem or um, if, you, if you don't struggle with Pride. Well, people that are prideful already have a problem. Yeah, listen to these. The seven deadly sins, uh, in no particular order. Envy. The opposite of envy, of course, is gratitude. Or or gluttony. opposite of gluttony is temperance. When's the last time you heard a sermon on gluttony? I've never heard a sermon on gluttony. I've never preached one. Third, greed. Greed. Greed destroys. Generosity is the Christian virtue. You're not your own. You're a steward. You see, a steward is someone who's given oversight of resources until the master calls him for an account. Greed. Lust. Of course, the opposite of lust is purity. Pride. Pr- pr- pride. Pride gloating that we are better than someone else or more financially secure or have a happier home. The opposite of pride is humility. Or sloth. I have to repent of being lazy frequently. The opposite of sloth is diligence. See, Christians should be up and doing people. Why? We're not our own. We've been bought with a price. We're to honor God with our body. We're to live for the coming generations. And and then the last is anger. of anger is patience, forbearance. So in the greatness and the mercy and tender goodness of God, I pray this year we would live really with a recommitment to being good stewards of the manifold grace of God that we would listen to the voice of God that gives hope and purpose. We would not listen to the voice that says, there's no hope or "It's no big deal. The voice that says, it's too late. No big deal. Listen to the voice of the good shepherd. Let's pray. For this day, we're so thankful and uh, we, we, we thank you that we can say with the Apostle Peter, Lord, uh, where do we go? Do, do we go to the Enlightenment fathers like Immanuel Kant, who was brilliant? Do we go to the neorealist existentialists like Sartre or Nietzsche or Camus? Do, do, do we go to the traditions uh, that have marked our culture or do we go to the living God? Where where do we go? Do we go to uh, individualism that determines what is right and wrong or do we go to the living God who has spoken with authority? To whom shall we go, O living Christ? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know you are indeed the Holy One sent from God. So we thank you. Thank you. You've made us for community. Thank you that all of the living of the Christian faith is lived before you and in conjunction with and in the company of brothers and sisters. So thankful for that. Thank you for the church. The bride of Christ. So we bless your name today. In Jesus' name.